0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. When I was about 10 or 12 years old, I was uh, playing basketball. Now, you need to understand, in order to understand the fullness of this story, you need to understand that my athletic achievements were few and far between. Okay, we'll just say it that way. So I'm playing basketball. I'm at the three-point line. I'm guarding my man. And the point guard comes down, and he's telegraphing. He's going to pass it to my man. and, and, And I'm looking, and I'm saying, this is my moment. This is my thing. Sure enough, he goes to pass it to him, and I jump in. Steal the ball. Now, I just want to take a moment and soak in the glory of what happened there. I did something. It was good. Right. But in that moment, then the referee happens to be standing right in front of me. I've got a wide open court minus the referee who's right there. And I'm right on the boundary line. I start dribbling uncoordinatedly, is enough like a giraffe with a basketball or whatever. And so sure enough, he's right there in front of me. The boundary line's right here. And I think, this doofus is in front of me. I can go around the boundary, right? So sure enough, I go out of bounds. He calls me out of bounds like he should have. And in my heart, I was so frustrated. My arms started to do this thing toward the referee. And out of the corner of the auditorium or the gym, I hear my father stand up and yell, Jason! And everything inside of me freezes. This morning, we find Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. And just like my father spoke those words that tuned my ear into his desire and intention and called out the sinful intention of my heart, the heavenly father would speak to his loving, beloved sons, and he would call out the intention of their hearts. See, God's good words were to bring life to those who would obey them. But when he gave his law, his intent was to show us that we wouldn't obey. See, when we come here to Exodus chapter 20, I think we're going to see this, that that God's words are wonderful. They're beautiful. They're rich with meaning. They're life-giving. But God's voice terrifies us. Just like my father tuned me into his intention, our heavenly father will tune us into his intention through his good words, his law that he proposes here this morning. So we're going to see this in two different phases. In verse through 1 through 17, this is all going to sound so familiar to us that, that God has given us his law. And we're so familiar with these 10 words, these 10 commandments, that we might just kind of bypass them. Now, I've secured that we're not going to do that because we're going to spend 10 weeks reviewing them, right? So thank you, Jason. Thanks for doing that. We're going to spend 10 weeks Uh, one at a time, looking at these individual words, trying to unpack the fullness of their meaning. But today, today, I just want to get the lay of the land, as it were. So we're going to see that God gives his law in verses 1 through 17, and then in verses 18 through 21, something strange, something unexpected is going to happen. See, God's people are going to stand before this thunderous voice of God, and they're not going to be able to stand to hear his voice. It's the natural tension of our text is that God speaks to his people finally and fully, but his people in their sinfulness can't stand to hear it. It's like they want to put their hands over their ears. So I want to dive in here in verses 1 through 17 of Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start in verses 1 and 2. See, it says this. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, we recognize that God is speaking to all of Israel here. He's not just speaking to Moses. He's not just speaking to Aaron. He's speaking to everyone. This Verse 1 is highlighting God spoke all these words, saying and if we were to go back into chapter 19 from last week in chapter 19 verse 9 god promised moses he said behold i'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when i speak to you and may also believe you forever See, what God's doing is he's speaking not just to Moses, he's now speaking for the first time to all of Israel. And I have to admit, last week, I kind of misunderstood this. I thought when when the thunder and lightning was happening and Israel's gathered at the base of the mountain, that that's when God spoke. That's not when God spoke. God is speaking to all of Israel here. And so he gives three statements in verse 2. He's going to review their history. Look at this. I am the Lord your God. That's one. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's two. Out of the house of slavery. That's three, right? He is Yahweh. That's the first thing he says. He's Yahweh. He's the self-existent God. He's never been created like they were created. He's not contingent upon anything else. He is self-existent. He always has been. He always will be. He needs nothing in his creation to be sustained. This is the God who speaks to them from the mountain. And the second thing, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who "Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Redeemed this people. He's brought them to himself, as we talked about last week. He saves them. He delivers them from what? He's saving them from their former slavery. That's the third thing. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's not like Israel was just in a good position before God delivered them. It's interesting here that God reminds them of the abusive, oppressive life of slavery that they had before they stood at this mountain. He's reminding them, say, remember all of that oppression that you experienced, all of those hard hours of labor? Remember how they killed your babies and threw them in the Nile? That's the slavery that you came out of. And right now, I want to give you direction, not because I want to oppress you, I want to give you life. What marked Egypt's influence, what marked Egypt's slavery was this sinful oppression of other people made in the image of God. And what marks God's servants is that they are clothed and given righteousness by the God who loves them, given righteous commands. So what happens then is he dives right into these laws. We're so familiar with these, right? Verses 3 through 8, we're going to see God's laws for loving him correctly. Look what he says. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." We want to back up for just a second here. There's a distinction that I think comes through the ministry of Jesus. Did Jesus summarize the law for us? If you remember Matthew chapter 22, someone comes to him and says, you know, explain to me the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, "Uh, you shall love the Lord. This is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And he kind of orients us to the law. He gives us two different aspects. There's the primary commandment to love the Lord our God. There's the secondary commandment to love the neighbor as ourselves. And as we look at these 10 commandments, we might say, hey, these first four are about loving God correctly. And commandments five through 10 are about loving our neighbor correctly. In fact, if we were to kind of pick up Alec Motyer, he he Matier, he he kind of describes it in this way. He gives us a, a sense and go ahead and push forward to the next two slides. Go ahead, and one more. Mateur lays it out. He says that there's thoughts and words and actions. And so our thoughts toward God and First and second commandment, our words toward God in the third commandment and our actions toward God in the fourth commandment are mirrored by our actions toward one another in the fifth through eighth commandment, our words to one another in the ninth commandment and our thoughts about one another in the 10th commandment. Another way to think about this, and Matier draws this out is uh, commands one through four, propose our, our, our duty to one another or to God. Command five, creates our duty to family. Commandments 6 through 10 to our neighbor. You can see there's all kinds of ways to structure these things, but as we dive in in verses 3 through 8, we cover these quickly because each of the next 10 weeks we're going to talk about these things, but first he starts off with the most basic, the gateway to these commandments and the first commandment in verse 3, he says, God is to be first among all gods. You shall have no other gods before me. And we just got to stop and say, this isn't to legitimize other gods. That's not a thing. In fact, Paul says, hey, uh, other gods are not a thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But second, he kind of fleshes this out a little bit more. We're not to, to make images of God and worship them in verses 4 through 6. In short, God is a God of jealousy who judges, and, and he has steadfast love to the Lord's, toward those who obey him. No image is to suffice to reflect the fullness of this God who judges and shows love. No image can do that. Third thing, verse 7, we aren't to take the Lord's name in vain. We aren't to lift God up to nothing, as the literal translation would be. God tells us that we should not do so because he will hold guilty those who do. Verse 8 Through 11, we are to regularly keep a Sabbath. God rested on the seventh day from his creative work. Because we are made in God's image, we also are to rest from our work and to take in God's blessing. See, all of these commandments, they lay out a paradigm to honor the Lord in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. And as we take a step back, we see that this is a blueprint to the rich spiritual life that God wants us to live. But there's another sphere in which we exist, and God addressed our earthly relationships in verses 5 through 10. Look at verse uh, 9 with me. God's law for loving our neighbors. Excuse me, I got that wrong. Uh, We're going to back up. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your day may be... Days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his on- ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. See, God sets forth a familial obligation here in verse 12 in commandment 5. We are to honor our father and mother. And he gives a particular outcome in verse 12b. He says that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Here you're a child, and even if you're an adult child, there is a process, a, a call for us to obey and to honor our father and our mother. If you're here, you're under your parents' roof right now, take heed of what he says, right? We are to notice that when we obey, there's a promise that's attached to this. This is security. This is safety for us. Command 6 through 9, go quick, right? We shouldn't murder, verse 13. We shouldn't commit adultery, verse 14. We shouldn't steal, verse 15. We shouldn't lie. If the first commandment is kind of a gateway into the commandments, The 10th commandment is a gateway out of them. We're going to sin against our neighbor. Guess what it is? It's covetousness, isn't it? It's the thing we want. It's the thing we desire. It's James chapter 4. Why do you uh, fight and quarrel among you? Is it not the desires that wage war? You covet. You don't have because you do not ask. See, it's covetousness that leads us to break commandments five through nine isn't it as it stands commandment one and ten bracket our understanding of what it is to love our god and to love our neighbor have you ever tried playing a board game with a three-year-old it's not fun it might be fun for them it's not fun for you there are no rules right any action is acceptable at the moment you playing in candyland they're going to pick up their guy and move him to the end and say i win and you're going to go okay playing monopoly which by the way never play monopoly with anyone let alone a three-year-old playing monopoly it's like all of these properties are mine and you get nothing if it weren't so cute it would be infuriating right See, the truth is that the game is only enjoyable when the rules are agreed upon. Our engagement with God only can be mutually enjoyed when God's character is honored by our obedience to his commandments. Now, let's just stop and talk about these commandments because I sense that there's a lot of confusion about the law in our day. See, God's laws are good. People have... uh, at least three different misconceptions about the law that I just want to kind of just throw out there for a second. Misconception number one, the law makes us right with God. If you read the New Testament, specifically the books of Romans and Galatians, we understand that that's not the purpose of the law. Misconception number two, other people keep the law. That somebody theoretically out there actually does these things consistently, They always honor their father and mother. They have never said a murderous word, or as Jesus kind of redefines it in Matthew 5, they've never said to their brother, empty head. Misconception number three is that God no longer cares about the law or about our righteousness. As we look at the landscape of the Bible it's consistently telling us that God's law is good. So Psalm 19, we're so familiar. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. But he goes on in Psalm 19, verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And it's not our perspective on the law, is it? Our Western Americanized perspective sees the law as limitation, as hindrance, as shackles. Romans 7, Paul affirms the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, sometimes God's laws don't feel good to us, we don't feel like it's good to have a sexual ethic. We don't feel like it's good to have to honor our parents. We don't feel like it's good for us to not be able to tell lies. We see these things as constant limitations. They feel limiting and confining. But we understand that the God's law is good in one particular sphere this morning. See, God's law is good to show us our sin. God's law is good to show us our sin. See, Paul really hammers this home in the books of Romans and Galatians. He tells us in Romans 7 that sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the law, creates the desire to break God's law. It's as if our sinful hearts were, were clued into the idea that this is what God didn't want us to do, so we had to do that very thing. Right? Like it's like that toddler that you say, Hey, Johnny, don't touch the electrical outlet because if you touch it, you could die. What's Johnny do? Extends the finger, doesn't he? The law was given to expose our anti-God posture. We are at bottom rebels. We are dissidents. We are those who are fighting against the authority and lordship of the heavenly Father who created us. And so God's law was lovingly given to expose our rebellion. God's law is good not because it feels right because it shows us God's character. And as it shows us God's character, it tells us how far apart we are from the God who created us in his image. When God tells us not to lie, he's also telling us that he is a God of truth. And our lying exposes that we aren't as like God as we think we are. God tells us that we shouldn't commit adultery. He tells us that he's always in our corner, that he has maintained his faithfulness to us and that we aren't as like God as we would think that we are. And it's like God's law is like this warning light. The other day I was driving up I-75. It's about 3.30 or 4 o'clock. I'm hitting that. Really busy section of I 75, I 70. And all of a sudden, I'm driving our, our car that we've only had a couple months, and uh, this warning light comes on. It says, You're losing tire pressure. Wow, that's cool. It tells me things, you know, but I just keep driving like nothing's going on. Sure enough, I start to hear in the back part of my car this thump, 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 thump. I'm too stupid to know what's going on. So I'm still driving blissfully realizing that's probably not a semi or something else. That's my tire. Sure enough, I had to cross three lanes of traffic, had a flat tire. The warning light was there. It was telling me something's wrong. I ignored it. God's law is a warning light. It's showing us, hey, something's wrong. Something's wrong with you. Your heart isn't situated to this sovereign, holy God like you think it is. What Moses records for us next feels like an interruption. What happens here is is God gives us these Ten Commandments. There's this short section in verses 18 through 21. And then in verse 22, he picks up his law again. He talks about altars and how to construct and build altars but this feels like a strange parenthesis. Let's just look at what Jesse already read for us this morning. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. I just want to pause and just consider the weight of what just, they just said. See, Israel is afraid, and, and they're so terrified, they want Moses to be the one to speak to them. They see the mountains smoking, they see lightning, they hear thunder and trumpet blasts, and these people are absolutely terrified. so they turn to Moses and they say to him, you speak to us. See, They understand that if God speaks to them, they will surely die. Strange to think about someone dying by hearing, right? But the reflection is adequate. I'm not sure you and I can make sense of what this moment feels like to be terrified by the voice of God, but also so, want so badly for him to dwell with you. There's this tension bound up in then We need the words of God, but we cannot stand to hear the voice of God. And so the natural solution is to turn Moses into the mediator. Look at what happens in verses 20 and 21 of Exodus chapter 20. He says this, Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now listen to this, verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. we will unpack the sweetness of this in a moment, but notice here that when the people of God need a mediator, when the people of God are staying as far away from God as possible, there was one man who went back up the mountain, went back into the thick cloud of darkness. See, Moses draws near. The section ends with Moses going back into the cloud. While all Israel is terrified, Moses has confidence to re-enter, to go back in. See, we look at this and we say, okay, God's words are good, but his people are terrified. His voice is terrifying. We've established that God's word is good. It helps us to, to run with the grain of his universe. It helps us to understand the character and nature of God. But when we come to this section, Moses is reminding us that God's presence, his voice is terrifying. To hear God's voice is to be in his presence. And and last week we saw that the presence of God descended on Mount Sinai. There was thunder and fire and lightning and smoke and all of God's people trembled. And This week we see this, that, that they're actually vocalizing this to Moses, like, you speak to us because I can't stand to hear this voice of God. It's just we think back through the history of this Old Testament already as as we're even kind of walking through this, and we think about all of the commandments that God has given and all of the times that God's people have disobeyed his words. Right? You have Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and they're told one thing. They're told not to eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and what's the one thing they do in Genesis 3? They disobey the voice of God. In chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Cain rises up and kills his brother. His guilt cries out to the Lord in his brother's blood. Abraham is called by the voice of God and is consistently like selling his wife off, like telling everybody he's her, she's his sister, not protecting her. Jacob is a liar and a deceiver. Time after time, these people of God are just disobeying his words time and time again. And we stop and we say, no wonder the voice of God is terrifying. No wonder the voice of God is so scary to us. Because we have rebellion bound up in our hearts. We have sin bound up in our history. And we need grace and mercy. It's like, it's like that child that when he puts his finger toward the outlet and you scream his name, say, Johnny, don't, and he jumps. He's so terrified of your voice because he was caught in the wrong. See, we have this tension then here, don't we? God's words are good, but his voice is terrifying. You know, if I remember correctly, when I was at my height of my basketball career there in the backseat when my father's talking to me after that game, It was an awkward moment, a confrontation. But by the time that car ride was done, everything was fine again. There was a reconciliation that had happened, right? My father expressed his disappointment. But the one thing I remember, by the time the car ride was over, we were good. The restoration had taken place. See, just consider for a second what Moses does in verses 20 and 21. Right, we saw that he speaks to Israel, and he turns around and he heads back into the cloud. What do he says? First thing he says in verse twenty he says, "Do, do not fear. Do not fear, Christian. You don't need to fear judgment if you're in Christ." John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect sacrificial love of Jesus has cast out our fear. When Jesus went to Calvary, he laid down his perfect life so that all of our imperfection could be paid for in full. You don't need to be afraid because Jesus soaked up all of God's wrath at the cross. Don't be afraid. Now, here's what's fascinating about what Moses says in verse 20. Look at it for just a second. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be in you. You see any contradiction there? Don't fear so that you can fear. See What happens is the second thing we see is that Moses reorients their fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. See, Moses advocates to these Israelites for an appropriate fear. An appropriate fear of God is not looking at his coming judgment seat. Rather, it's looking at God himself. It wants to please this God, but not out of fear of judgment, but out of a proper orientation to his person, his grace, his mercy, his kindness. See, the fear of the Lord, as Moses is saying here, is a proper impetus for us to obey. If we obey God's gracious provision in Christ, or if, if God's gracious provision in Christ doesn't strip us of appropriate fear, it reorients us back to the, the fear of the Lord, not the fear of judgment. Let me say that again, because I totally messed it up, and I want to read it again. God's gracious provision in Christ doesn't strip us of appropriate fear. It reorients our fear to the fear of the Lord and not to fear of judgment. We should fear the Lord. We should not fear judgment. You get that distinction? Some of us early in our faith, sometimes it's hard. We feel like, what if I'm not a Christian? What if I'm not really in Christ? What if I'm really susceptible to the judgment of God? Well, there are lots of ways for us to assess the spiritual state that you have. But one thing that's true is that if I'm a son of God, I have confidence in the face of judgment. Third thing he does is that he goes back into the cloud. You know Moses becomes this picture of a mediator for us. We've talked about this many times throughout our times in Exodus. Moses is this picture of Christ. In fact, as Deuteronomy kind of closes up, Moses promises that someone else like him is going to come. Of course we know that person to be Jesus. Jesus was to be the ultimate ultimate mediator. And so Moses is a picture of this mediatorial work of Christ. It's important for us that, that Jesus or Moses, they go back into the cloud. John tells us that Jesus is our advocate before the Father, that Jesus Christ the righteous, if we have sinned, Jesus Christ the righteous, as, as Hebrew says, is speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Even now, when we sin, Jesus advocates us before God's throne. He stands between God's terrifying presence and God's grace-needy people. See, here's the upshot of this, is that we can hear God's beautiful, life-giving words because of God's life-altering grace. We can stand before the terrifying voice of God because Jesus bore our judgment. Because Jesus took our sin to the cross, laid his life down, and was resurrected. This isn't just a fairy tale. This isn't just some kind of story that we kind of pass around to salve our consciences. This is the true reality of God's justifying work in Christ. And Jason, that's wonderful. But how do I live in this way tomorrow? Tomorrow? What does this passage have to do with me? How do I understand this passage to apply to the situation that I face? See, at bottom, these Ten Commandments, they say this. You and I don't get to make the rules. We don't get to make the rules. It's funny to think right now that humanity has a a strategy for dealing with God's terrifying voice. And that strategy is kind of summed up in this, that uh, we change the words of God so that the voice of God becomes less frightening. We change the words of God so that the voice of God becomes less frightening. Just consider these options, right? When God says you shall not commit adultery, we're tempted to say love is love and it doesn't matter what happens in my bedroom. When God says you shall not murder We might stop and say, A woman has a right to choose what's done with her body. Let's bring it a little closer to home, though, right? When God says, You shall not commit adultery, we say, It's just a little look, or I'm just appreciating beauty. That one drives me crazy, right? When God says, Honor your father and mother, we say, My parents are wrong. I can speak about them and to them as I please. When God says, obey your father or honor your father and mother, sometimes we say what mom and dad don't know won't hurt them. When God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep keep it holy, we are tempted to say, God is pleased with my busyness. Just ask this question. If God's words to us are good, they are life to us, why are we so quick to dismiss them? If God's words are life giving. Why are we so quick to be dismissive? Sometimes we allow our inner dialogue to trump the authority of God's holy words. You ever do that? You wake up in the morning and you say, man, I should get up and read the scriptures right now. God tells me that he uses his words for specific ways. You say, but I'm really tired, and so I'm not going to obey. You might not say it that blatantly, but that's what we do. We say, I know I should do X, because, but because I'm Y, feeling this way or that way, I don't need to obey right now. I should love this person, but I'm so fed up that I don't need to obey right now. I know I should get up and read the scripture, but I'm so tired that I don't need to obey right now. We want to just stop and consider that for a moment. Listen, first, I want to address the situation, right? We got a lot of young families with young kids. And I've got people coming to me all the time. and They're saying, I would love to have more time in the word but I have a kid that sleeps like a half hour every night, right? We had a daughter. Well, we have a daughter. We still do. She's still here. That girl did not sleep. I'm convinced that she still does not sleep. She used to tell us that she would wake up in the middle of the night and go to her window and watch the neighbor's TV throughout the night. I'm afraid of what she saw, you know? You have kids that don't sleep, and you're saying, I want to read the Word, and I just want to hear you or have you hear me say listen god's gracious right god's gracious so whatever little time you can give to him if it's 5 minutes while you're just kind of soaking in a passage as much as you can in 5 minutes i think god multiplies that if it's 30 minutes of blippy and forgive me i don't even know who blippy is i i've heard that it's yeah awful anyway if it's 30 minutes of Blippy so that you can have time in the scriptures, do 30 minutes of Blippy, right? What you need more than anything like food, like air, you need to hear these life giving words of God. And when you kind of get up in the morning and say, I, You don't understand, my kid's not sleeping, I'm just not going to do it. That's the kind of thing that we want to address, right? Make as little space, whatever the space is, make some space to hear the words of God, right? this morning, we're, we're not trying to set new laws in front of you. In fact, here's what's fascinating about this chapter. If you go through this 10 commandments, these 10 commandments, all of these things are going to be restated in some form or fashion in the New Testament. They're not going to be uh, kind of buried in the uh, you know Old Testament obscure laws, like about shaving your corners of your beard and all these other things. What God is calling us to in this passage still stands today. Guess what? Just because you're in Christ, you don't get to murder right? Just because you're in Christ, you don't get to have adultery. Just because you're in Christ, you don't get to do these things. They have consequences. God's law, God's grace, our, our new era in grace does not eradicate these commandments from us. We still should obey these things. But what it does do is it orients us to our need for grace. It allows us to see that we don't ever arrive Even as I've been a Christian for 20, 25 years, I recognize that I still break some of these things. I still need God's grace and mercy. I still need a Jesus who goes back to the throne of God, an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You can't do this on your own. If you were to try and fulfill these Ten Commandments, wouldn't you fail? How long will it be before the words come out of your mouth that you dishonor your father and your mother? How long will it be before you tell the smallest version, the most small distortion of the truth? This morning, this word is meant to orient us to a God of kindness and graciousness. I wonder if we might do that. I wonder if we might consider the grace and mercy that God shows to us in the midst of these things so that we might also obey them. You know, here bound up in this passage, God doesn't just say, okay, um, go ahead and do these things. He gives two different reasons for obedience in verse two he says i am the lord your god who brought you out of all of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery he reminds them of his gracious kindness and then he gives them the law we got to get that order correctly right we don't become right with god because we obeyed his commandments we become right with god because of his saving justifying work so that we can obey his commandments Second thing he does is he instills in us a fear, an appropriate fear of the Lord that we find in verse 20. The fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. See what grace should do properly in you if it's working correctly? It should say, God has been so abundantly gracious and kind to me. I I want to please him in everything I do. God has been so good to me to meet me with his kindness. I want to live according to his commands. Secondly, God is so holy and so righteous and so otherworldly. I want to obey him because I know that he's created this world and my obedience to him is righteousness. Those two things are both true. This week I've been reading a story of Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon uh, is such an interesting person. He, he grows up in this Christian home where his grandfather and his father are both preachers. And so he's constantly around the scriptures. In fact, when he was three years old, he's paved, or, uh, leafing through a book of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. He's so oriented to the the goodness and mercies of God. As a six-year-old, he goes and confronts one of his father's church members who's uh, living a wayward life. And as a six-year-old says to, you know, he goes into a bar, as it were, and starts, you know, talking down this guy who's in the bar, right? But he has this crisis when he's somewhere around 15 to 20, and He's recognizing he doesn't think he's converted, and what's happening time after time again is he's going to a church, and he's seeing how what must I do to be saved? What must I do to, to know that I'm right with God, and, and pastor after pastor is not presenting the truth of the gospel, until finally he, he has this unique set of circumstances. First, his school is closed because of the flu that breaks out, so he comes home. He's on his way to his regular church on a Sunday morning, and a snowstorm settles in, so he can't make it to his church. He turns aside this little alley of this Methodist church that's there, 15 to 20 people. And not only that, the regular pastor couldn't make it through the snow, so just a regular church attender, a deacon, or someone else stands up and starts to preach. And the text is this, look unto the Lord. It's there through the mouth of this untrained individual, through all of the rerouting that had happened in God's sovereign purpose, that Spurgeon hears the life-giving words of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he cannot earn God's salvation, that he must look to Jesus Christ to give him righteousness, and he must turn from his self-reliance and sinfulness. See, this morning, when we orient ourselves to God's grace, We want to obey. What happens in Spurgeon's life is then a lifelong trajectory of faithful service to his Lord. I wonder if we might so orient ourselves to God's grace that we may be thrust into proper obedience. I want to pray to that end for us here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would orient us to your grace and your kindness Allow us to know the mercy that you show us. Allow us to understand the purpose of your law, that it's to show us our sinfulness and to lead us to Christ. Lord, Paul says that your law is a tutor that is meant to show us our need of Jesus. So, Lord, make us a needy people. Make us a grace-oriented people so that we might also be an obedient people. We pray these things in Jesus' name.